we got more than 50 responses from people who told us all about what happened to them and were so open with us, which really helped drive home the point that, okay, we're going in the right direction because our readers have experienced this and some of them are even willing to tell us about it. It's been 10 years since the subprime crisis forced countless people to lose their homes. Now's the perfect time to take a deep dive into the data and find out what lessons can be learned. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Today we're going to be talking to two journalists who put together a data-heavy special report about the subprime mortgage crisis. Lisa Rowan is a senior writer, and Alex Mahadevan is a data journalist at uh, The Penny Hoarder. Welcome to the podcast, Alex and Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, so so to start off with, you tell me about the penny hoarder. What is that? You know, a lot of people may not have heard of it. So the penny hoarder is one of the largest personal finance websites. Our number one goal is to put more money in our readers' pockets. So we cover all sorts of personal finance topics, deals, jobs. We really run the gamut when it comes to uh, uh, financial news. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about this because this is kind of an interesting, you know, people think of journalism and, and, uh, you know, different types of uh, publications. Is this something that people subscribe to? Is it strictly an online publication? Well, it's strictly online, but we also have quite a large email subscription base for several emails that we put out every day. Basically, I guess your audience are people who are looking to stay up to date on, you know, financial information. For business concerns or for personal finance, what what is it the focus or is it both? So we're definitely doing personal finance for sort of the everyman. We don't get into some of the nitty gritty of what business sections are covering or what some of the financial sector websites are covering. We're really writing content and producing content for people who just want to be better with their money, whether they're just starting out creating their first budget or maybe just want to refine how they're doing money, how they're thinking about money. There's been a real boom in personal finance blogging and information over the past, you know, five to 10 years. Really funny since the recession that we're really trying to find those people where they are, whether they're people who want to work from home or are looking for a job or people who, you know, might be working on their first investment account. So, we do still run the gamut between a lot of personal finance basics and some of the nuances of, you know, how to do your money the, the best that you can. So I, I guess the, it's fair to say that it's your, your, your consumer focused. Yes, I very much so. That's probably what we should have said at the beginning. Probably, probably just should have told you that at first, but okay. here we are. Okay, here we are. The reason we're talking is because you guys did a really kind of you know, great comprehensive uh, report about the subprime mortgage crisis, which is, you know, it took place about 10 years ago, sort of looking back. And I can see how that fits into, you know, how you would serve your audience. It's like, here was a big thing that, that sort of shook up, you know, a lot of people's uh, personal finances. What was it that kind of inspired you guys to do this project? We had sort of received not an order, but a, a challenge from our editors at the Penny Hoarder. And they said, do something big. What, what do you want to do that's big and that's going to be collaborative and that's going to involve a lot of different departments? We saw a lot of growth at the Penny Hoarder between 2015 and 2017. And we were looking for ways to collaborate better and more often. So we were all invited to bring ideas to the table of something we could tackle in a way that would be larger than 
a five minute video or a 2,500 word piece, right? Something deeper that would still resonate with our consumer audience. And our colleague, Desiree Stennett, who was the first byline on the piece, she had this idea to look back at the foreclosure crisis from 10 years ago. She was she was looking at the calendar and knew the anniversary was coming up. And Desiree grew up in the Miami area. And with Miami-Dade being one of the you know, most severely hit areas of the country during the foreclosure crisis, she had a lot of questions that weren't answered about how people were faring, even though we see a lot of reports that the economy is healthy and the economy has recovered and we're doing well. And she was curious as to whether that would be true if we talked to people who were hit hardest 10 years ago who actually lost their homes. So that was um, the idea that you know, struck people the most as something we might be able to follow that might resonate with our readership who may have gone through similar hardships during the recession. And so that's that's how the baby was born. So conceived, actually, it wasn't how it was born. It was just how it was conceived. Yeah. Yeah. You had to had to figure out uh, the conception. Well, let's talk about the conception a little bit. OK, this is what we're going to focus on. You know, how did you decide that, OK, this is the way we're going to cover it? Because it's fairly comprehensive. You You don't just talk to you know, homeowners, you talk to bankers, you talk to, you know, sheriffs, law enforcement people who had to sort of enforce, you know, uh, court orders. You, you talk to bankers and and just lots of different people. Was that your goal going out at the beginning is to, to try to make it as comprehensive and, and as big as you can? So at first we asked our readers because we really weren't sure which direction we would go in besides knowing that we wanted to talk to people who had experienced great loss during the recession, especially with foreclosure. And so we put out a call in our email newsletter for people to fill out a simple Google form and tell us, did you lose your home? How are you doing now? What was your experience like? And that was really surprising that we got so many responses to that. We got more than 50 responses from people who told us all about what happened to them and were so open with us, which really helped drive home the point that, okay, we're going in the right direction because our readers have experienced this, and some of them are even willing to tell us about it. But as far as going wider than that and looking at professions and different aspects of this, a lot of it was sort of by accident. And Alex might be able to talk a little bit about that because he sort of started poking around in some of the data to see what we would find. And that's really when we started opening it up to um, some of the careers that changed a little bit too during that time period. Yeah, originally when we started... We knew that we were going to have to use data in some way in this piece. I mean, you can't talk about the recession and the recovery without it. So what I started with first is I downloaded census tracts for, well, I downloaded every single census tract in the U.S. and property values to look at the neighborhoods as specific I could get that had the biggest run up before the housing burst and the biggest decline after. And I found that there was actually a neighborhood in Lee County I think it's called Lehigh Acres that ended up being far and away the neighborhood that was hit the hardest and was pretty much half built. So I started poking around in property records there to see if I could find a source of some uh, of some sort for that. And uh, that's how we actually found a, a real estate agent who had bought up several houses in this, this neighborhood. He ended up uh, seeing one of his real estate signs on the national news as this was all going down. So that's how it sort of started on the, the data end. And Alex was also thinking ahead to, you know, Alex had worked closer to Lee County previously before the Penny Hoarder and had remembered the county clerk from the time down in that area and said, hey, check this guy out. And well, it turns out he was in the Wall Street Journal at the time because, you know, Lee County was dealing with such a, an influx of foreclosures. So that sort of 
you know, some of our ties to Florida actually helped us a lot during this. Yeah. One of the things that that I really liked about this story is the way it was kind of like a a way a tidal wave sort of builds that it's not just one group that's going to be impacted. It's lots of different groups. And the way you wrote it, you know, as you began to see people who were upside down on their loans and they, they were really about to lose their mortgages. I mean, as that sort of rose, it also began to affect other people, other businesses, construction, banks. I mean, you had a whole section in there about, you know, during the the height of it, how much paperwork that that produced and, and what that meant for all these, you know, companies that are trying to process this and get people in and they couldn't find enough people to hire to fill these positions. Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you know, the way that that all of these cases just sort of filled up the court's time and, and what strategies judges had to go through to try to, to push this stuff through in a, in a timely fashion. And then even taking it to the next step of, you know, people who were being evicted and, and what the impact that had on, on deputies and stuff it is so such a because you went so broad and you had so much information and different perspectives, you got a real sense of this sort of overwhelming tide of, you know, financial woe that was hitting all sectors of society. Yeah, it definitely, you could feel it. And I know for, you know, a lot of people who told us their stories, I think, you know, there were some flashbacks and there were a lot of memories that they had maybe tried to bury as much as they could. And it was so far reaching that I think when you look back at something 10 years ago, it's easy to look at the numbers and look at the black and white of it. But there's so much gray in the middle of what happened to real people and even how they were affected in the years immediately following the recession. And it's something that, look, I'm like giving away my age here, but I was graduating college during the recession and was lucky to have a job right out of college and not have to worry about whether or not my entire life was going to change in a matter of a couple of months, like the people that we ended up talking to. So bringing back some of those feelings of anxiety that were present at the time was really, it's strange to say we felt lucky that we could do that, but we felt grateful that people were willing to revisit this time in their lives with such clarity and with such openness. And I'm thinking of the there. There was the one guy. I think he started out as a as a as a car dealer in high end automobiles, mm-hmm. and then he saw all these people coming in buying these high end automobiles, or and they were real estate people, and they were getting lots of money. So he he decided to become a real estate agent, and you know he started making money on, on his houses, and uh, and then everything went south on him. And then he because he was in the position that he was in, he was able to you know sort of help liquidate some of these properties and and work through the crisis. But, you know, it still affected him negatively. But, you know, just seeing how his life changed, seeing how everybody's life's changed, you know, who were in different the different sides of this. Now, one of the things that I found fascinating was it wasn't just about you didn't just look at, you know, here's just one aspect of it. But you also looked into things like, you know, unfair lending practices and, you know, how certain um, ethnic and uh, racial groups were being targeted. You know, when did that sort of that aspect of the reporting become part of it? That was a focus from the very beginning. And we weren't entirely sure how the sourcing would go for that, because, of course, you want, you know, real stories and real individuals to be able to share their stories in every part of this larger project. But 
we knew that the race issue with predatory lending was going to have to be something we would have to address, especially with Desiree's background, having come from the Miami area and having a sense, maybe she didn't know it, you know, in the numbers or in the history, but she had a sense that it was harder for minority borrowers in the Miami area to get out from under these bad loans once they were in them. So that was something we were thinking about for a long time, but it wasn't until towards the end of our reporting that we really nailed down some sources that we could actually talk to. Part of it is because in the housing discrimination cases that have been won in court, the attorneys are afraid of the appeals process and don't want their clients speaking out in, you know, and risking that they might damage any sort of argument that the the bank is going to come back with later. There are cases that the ACLU has brought against mortgage lenders where they just have gotten exhausted basically and given up. And those people don't necessarily want to talk about their experience after years and years of being in court about it. So we kind of lucked out. Our video crew was looking into some of these cases where cities were filing complaints against mortgage lenders for basically ruining their ruining their economies during the foreclosure crisis by setting these cities up to fail by putting their minority borrowers in a really bad place and giving them bad loans. And the city of Miami Gardens, which is a suburb of Miami, had one of these cases open against Wells Fargo for some time. And we were able to also, through the NAACP chapter in Miami, were able to connect with a woman, Daniela Pierre, who lived in Miami Gardens at the time of those accusations. So we were never able to prove that Danielle Pierre had been discriminated against by any mortgage company during the time, but being able to connect the location and her status as a minority borrower who was a single mom struggling to get by with her two kids, being able to bring that sort of perspective, you know, it wasn't this perfect connect the dot scheme, but we could at least give a sense of what people are still feeling in these areas that have been affected on not just a personal level, but on like a municipal level and that economic impact that has been so great. And it took us a while to get there. We sort of circled in on it. We had a lot of potential sources that backed out or never came through or, you know, we were getting into February, March and weren't sure who we were going to have for that third story beyond court document transcripts. And the other thing was that you were able to put that some of those stories in historical context about, you know, how these these, you know, unfair lending practices, these predatory uh, lending practices had developed, you know, over decades and how in this particular crisis, you know, just made the situation worse. And it certainly made it worse for these particular communities. Now, uh, you mentioned your video crew. This isn't just a text story. You have animation in there. You have video. And I think you even said at the beginning when, when your, your bosses challenged you to do something big was, was the idea always to let's try to incorporate as many different storytelling techniques as you could. And then if so, then how did you, you know, how did you sort of plan that out and work that into your storytelling? When we were first thinking about the scope, you know, I was thinking, okay, I've, I've got to get the written story. That's clearly where I am the best candidate to work on this. I'm not a video person. I'm not a photographer, but we have such talent in our staff that we knew we wanted to capture as much as we could. And then our 
idea was basically to figure it out once we had a lot of footage, right? Once we had photos, once we had video, figure out how to work that into the narrative that we were going to present on our website. So it's given us some opportunities to think outside the box a little bit and, and how we present a story to our readership, especially a readership that's not used to a big project like this from a consumer site like the Penny Hoarder, and really introducing them to this story in several different ways. So we've got animation and photo and video on the website, but we've also been doing Instagram stories to introduce some of these characters that we followed. We had a multi-part Facebook watch video that we had to share some of those stories. And then there's going to be a larger documentary that comes out later in October to really go in even more depth into this topic. So wherever a reader wants to meet us, whether they want to check us out on the Instagram story or read the 12,000 words or watch a six minute video or an hour long video, they have so many options. I think in the future, whatever we work on to this sort of level is going to be maybe a little bit more refined from the start, figuring out exactly what we want before we go out and get it. But with something that was as wide sweeping as this, we had people from all over the country that we were interviewing and, you know, it made the most sense to just go out there and see what we could get because we really had no idea. I mean, we're the penny hoarder. We're not the New York Times rolling up into people's homes and saying, hey, tell me, tell me about the worst time in your life. Don't beat yourself up over that. Because <laughs> the fact is, I mean, you're, you're journalists, you know how to tell stories. And, and as long as you have a sufficient resources, you don't necessarily need to have the resources in New York Times to tell a big story. That's one of the great things about it. I mean, you're doing something that people don't expect. And you're yeah. doing it really well with a lot of scope and a lot of depth. That you know, I think that things like that have an impact on people. What have you been able to glean much of uh, the uh, reaction from your audience on this? Man, I mean, I was really surprised at how much it's still resonating with people. That the stories that we told are what people in our readership are still experiencing today. Either they lost their homes or they thought they would lose their homes or someone lost a job during the recession and they're still sort of rebounding financially. The idea that financial insecurity is so widespread, even in these, you know, solid times after this economic period, it really struck me how many people said, yes, like I experienced a part of this too. And and thank you to these people for sharing their stories. I, I always have this thing as, as a reporter where I'm always afraid that I'm asking too much of a source. Like I've already talked to you for an hour. I'm so sorry. Can I talk to you again? Can I come to your house? Can I come to your house tomorrow and the next day? And I'm always afraid of stepping on toes and sort of violating that trust. But everyone that we worked with was so kind. And even, you know, after going through many Kleenex telling their stories was just willing to have it all out there. And I hope, you know, that they realize that so many of our readers have commented and emailed us and said that, yes, I feel this too. And I, it may not bring me closure, but it, it helps me get there a little bit. You can put those Kleenex on your expense report, I think. So if you oh, my God, them. yes. My my uh, my editor will love that expense report. $200. So It was very emotional. It was very emotional. It was a very emotional story. It has a very big impact. So in covering this story, I mean, you know, I think back at the the subprime crisis, and, and I have sort of a general sense of, of, of what happened and how people were impacted and, you know, what were the causes of it. When you were covering this, was there anything that just sort of surprised you that – that was like, wow, th you know, how did this happen this way? Or, you know, or was it more the personal stuff that had a bigger impact on you? One thing that surprised me 
a ton while reporting this was nothing really about the actual crisis, but how bad the government is at tracking foreclosures and actually making nationwide foreclosure data available to the public. A lot of the numbers that we got came through a private company that um, that's all they do. But I mean, if I had two years, I'd build a scraper to scrape every county clerk site for foreclosures because I could probably make a lot of money that way. That's interesting. That's something you just sort of, you know, discovered. You know, it reminds me of other stories that we've talked about on the podcast where there, you know, one would assume like, for example, uh, we did a story, um, I forget what the the nature of the story was, it was something that ProPublica had worked on and they were, they were looking for, you know, national data on, um, on some sort of the reporting of, of certain type of oh, reporting of hate crimes is what it was. And there was no central repository for that. And everything that those FBI had was in different formats from different, you know, police districts that just happened to decide that they wanted to contribute this information. So things like that, this idea of, you know, here we are a nation that has so much, you know, data at our fingertips, you know, how important it would be to get some of these structures out there so that we could track things like this that would certainly that would have a huge impact on it. Exactly. Especially considering, you know, the last 10 years, you'd think this would be something that they'd be on top of. All the lessons have been learned and this won't happen again. I think that's what we can <laughs> we can gather from all of your, your excellent reporting. Along that vein, you know, what is the takeaway that you'd like people to have? So much of what we cover at The Penny Hoarder is hyper-practical. Like, we, we really want to give people actionable advice about how they can improve their lives by improving their financial security at whatever level. And, you know, this project clearly doesn't have an actionable takeaway of, you know, here are four things to do now that you've learned all this. So the first thing that I hope people take away is a sense of understanding. When I first was thinking about covering the financial crisis, I think I had remembered this sense from 10 years ago of, oh, the people who lost their homes, they bought too much home. They, they bought what they couldn't afford. They had a role to play in this. And it was basically people's own fault that they lost their homes. And it helped me see the nuance of what happened here and how the mortgage lending landscape had a role and how the government had a role. And how borrowers as well had a role in what happened. And now that I've looked at eight bajillion pages of mortgage documents, I I see how hard it was to buy a home and survive with a home at that time. So I hope it, it brings a certain level of understanding for readers who may not have realized how complex it was and how nuanced the situation was. And the other takeaway that I hope people get out of it is that uh, they need to be thinking really smart about their own homeownership role, their own financial security. Because, uh, you know, everyone we talked to, it wasn't just that the interest rate jumped up for the mortgage. It was they lost a job or someone had a medical bill or there was a divorce or um, something along those lines that really rocked their world alongside the market crashing and the housing boom falling apart. So thinking really wisely about you know, not not making people fear for their future, but helping them to think wisely about how they're going to protect themselves um, for for the long haul. Yeah. As a homeowner, I, I, after reading your story, I kind of took away a feeling of being more cautious, I guess, about, you know, making these big decisions. And, and you know, some of these deals that look like, well, yeah, I could just, you know, refinance and that would be OK, but not you know taking into account 
you know, the, the unforeseen, um, you know, may, taking those risks when may, maybe I shouldn't be taking those risks, just being, being smarter about it. So, you know, what did, what for, for both of you, what did you, what did you personally sort of take away from this did, is, I mean, doing a big project like this, I mean, how did, how does that make you feel as a journalist, uh, you know, as a storyteller? God, I want another one. <laughs> <laughs> Give me another one. Okay. <laughs> um, oh my gosh. I, I never worked on something this long. And if I had to turn around tomorrow and do another one, I would do it and I would get no sleep and I would be totally crazy and I would drink so much wine, but I enjoyed so much the process of collaborating. And I, um, I sat next to Desiree Stennett before she, um, left to go to her new role and we spent, most of our lives together for six months while we were working on this. And that was such an experience to work and learn alongside her and to have someone to constantly bat ideas off of. Um, and then run over to Alex and be like, Alex, help me fix these numbers. And just going through that process of working on something that was really lengthy and really meaty and where we got to tell so many details of so many different parts of this story that I can only hope that I get to do more in-depth projects like this soon. How about you, Alex? Well, for me, I mean, I hate I the data reporter, so I have to get technical. But, you know, I think it, it really is sort of data reporting 101, but it was a, a real reminder to me to stay organized with a repository of all my data sources and write reproducible code. So if the project ends up taking maybe a month or two longer, that I can just run some code and update everything. So uh, it was a good reminder of that. The one other thing, you know, usually I start out these podcasts, I, I ask the the journalists to sort of tell me about their journalist journey, about how they became journalists. So let's sort of wrap up with that. You know, we'll start with you, Alex, since, since you just answered a question. You know, how did you become a data journalist? What, you know, what was your path to that? It was a, it was a long and winding road, but uh, mm -hmm. I graduated with a, a, an economics degree. And when I graduated, I realized at the last minute I didn't want to really work as an analyst or anything. So uh, I started applying for business reporting jobs. Ended up getting one in the Tampa Bay area and uh, worked there for a while. Ended up bouncing around between um, newspapers and then finally settled uh, at a community newspaper uh, where we did hyper-local coverage in Sarasota, Florida. And I got really, really interested in campaign finance there, something that even the big daily wasn't really that great at covering. And I was reporting on campaign finance and real estate and development and retail news. And I started to realize that uh, I could take a lot of the lessons that I learned in economics about, you know, writing code and keeping up databases to make my job uh, a lot easier. And so um, that's when I sort of started transitioning into uh, a lot more data work. And um, then I happened to have an old editor who uh, ended up at the Penny Hoarder and she posted a job for a data journalist. And I read the description. And I was like, wow, this is exactly what I want to be doing. So uh, here I am. How about you, uh, Lisa? Uh, I don't have an economics degree. I have two history degrees that are so useful. I have actually been reporting since I was 16. I got my first job as a stringer for a local paper when I was 16 and I have been in and out of news ever since. Some of your listeners may remember the hyped up but short-lived tbd.com back in 2010 in the TBD. DC area. TBD. Finish, finish what you're saying and we'll talk about TBD. Go on. 
Okay, we'll go back to TBD. So uh, I worked at TBD for um, a short time and then was a freelancer for a really long time. You know, owned a vintage store somewhere in there, too. Just like was just a renaissance woman and was freelancing for the penny hoarder and was freelancing more and more and doing more reporting and eventually got convinced to move to penny hoarder headquarters two years ago. So I have never seen myself as a personal finance reporter, you know, until very recently, because I was always terrible at math. I did not know how to break down these concepts to readers who had the same level of personal finance education as I did. But really, it's been an education over the past couple of years as the company has grown to come on board and refine our mission to, you know, inform readers and dig in. I I really cover retail and grocery stores on a daily basis with a little side of class action lawsuits. Um, So doing something like this, where it's very deeply personal, um, has been a real treat for me to sort of stretch my skills. That, that, that that's kind of a cool um, trajectory to sort of expand on the, the t- TBD uh, ex- aspect and this podcast. The TBD is one of the things that we talked quite a lot about on the early days of the podcast. Uh, one of our first guests was Steve Buttry, who I, I, he, was a, Steve. he was a yeah you know, exactly all Steve. I had I interviewed him um, a year a year uh, a month uh, before he died. Um, you know, he was, he was a great guy, you know, a lot of what, you know, and I said this at the time that he had died, that a lot of the things that he was sort of professing, you know, it kind of drives the, um, the rationale a lot behind this podcast, but, you know, we've, we've had Mandy Jenkins on, we had, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, that other guy up in, up in, up in, uh, Philadelphia, um, gosh. Jim, oh um, my Jim God, Brady, yeah. Um, Jim Brady. Yeah, we had yep. Jim Brady on. No, I. Th- they're probably about. We've probably had about seven or eight people from TBD who've been on this, and it was a great noble experiment. <laughs> and there are lots it was. of stories. It was so noble. There are lots, lots of stories about it, and it's in you know, and the Thunderdome that, that followed it. But you know, good jaded data journalism, good local journalism. What you're doing, what you guys are doing with with your project, which I haven't even actually given the name of, which is. The where here it is the American nightmare subprime mortgage mm-hmm. crisis ten years later, um, I think is a great piece of uh, uh, local journalism, digital journalism on a big topic. I say local journalism. I mean a lot of the people you spoke to were in, were in Florida and Georgia, but it was also you know something that impacted people across the whole country. Uh, Lisa and Alex, thanks for coming to the podcast. This has been great. Thanks for Thank having you. us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Michael O'Connell, your host. I wanted to thank everybody who has signed up in the last few weeks for our weekly newsletter. If you have not done it, I encourage you to do so. You'll get the latest news about our podcast and uh, everything about upcoming episodes and possibly some live events that we're, we're trying, to, trying to book. So go to itsalljournalism.com, follow the link at the top of the page, and subscribe. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Amelia Brust helped out on booking. And I'm, again, your host, Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks again for listening.
the Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week, we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson, not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The What's Working in Washington podcast with your host, Jonathan Aberman. We share this region's innovative, entrepreneurial, and creative spirit. This podcast tells impressive stories of passion and spunk taking place here in the D.C. region. It illustrates how the nation's capital is anything but the stuffy, bureaucratic, politics-only reputation it tries to shed. The What's Working in Washington podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast D.C.